0: Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches. And Medhab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? running your first marathon, or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight, because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm with my dear friend, Charlie Engel. And for those of you that don't remember the name, Charlie Engel became famous for his um, run across the Sahara. Uh, Along with a couple of friends, they braved the deserts of the Sahara and raise some awareness for the need for water in Africa. You could clear this up for me in a minute, Charlie. And Charlie essentially is an extraordinary elite ultra marathoner. And I just love talking to Charlie. He's got great stories. And I really wanted to get him back on so we could discuss all things running and crazy. Charlie, say hello to everybody.
1: Hey, Richard. How are you doing? And Hello, everybody. Last time I saw you, Richard, you were, you were if I remember right, you were covered with sand pretty much head to toe and sweating profusely at the end of a Spartan race.
0: Now, your memory's slipping, Charlie, because I was there, yeah. but I, I was not a sugar cookie. That was Mike Wardian. He was absolutely a sugar cookie. He was head to toe in sand and silt because he wasn't very proficient at all of the obstacles, and he apparently learned to master the burpee.
1: He did a lot of burpees, and he got sand in his beard. Even I think uh, I think he still—I don't know how much he still beat me by, which is really annoying. Uh, but it was several minutes, despite the fact that I I actually only missed one obstacle and only did a few burpees, and and he was—he did a lot more burpees than I did, and still managed to beat me, which is a, a little a little depressing and, and telling on his talent more than anything else, though. So.
0: Right. So, Charlie, have you since then done any other obstacle races?
1: You know, I have not done any more of them, although, you know, I really want to. So it is a, it is a, I think the Spartan and and Tough Mudder format is fascinating. And, And to tell you the truth, you and I talked when we were on the Spartan cruise and, I went because I thought it was a really cool trip, and I got invited, and got to bring my wife, and I thought it would just be fun, and I would do it, and that would be the end of it. And, and frankly, I, I loved it. I thought it was an absolute blast, and I really that one was a sprint. And I, I think I like to think anyway that if I was able to do some of the longer ones as our friend Nick Holland is getting ready to do the uh, the long Spartan race this weekend, I guess the world championship, and that one's a uh, half marathon distance. I, I think that would be more suited to me, and I plan in this next year to try a couple more. How about you?
0: Well, i got to tell you, um, I have been a voyeur in the sport so far. And I have people nudging me left and right because the bulk of my work these days has been with obstacle racing athletes. And, you know, we we, we always come around to that question, hey, Richard, when are you going to do one of these yourself? And I come back with my, my lame excuse about being too old, I should have done it a long time ago, and blah, blah, blah. But who knows? I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I've learned to never say never. And uh, I, like you, think that, I need something somewhere be beyond a sprint and possibly somewhere beneath uh, this beast that they talk about or ultra beast but as you yeah. suggested uh, Nick he's uh, he's got his eye on the prize he thinks that you know relative to his ability to run well for long distances at elevation that he stands a pretty good chance against some of these young bucks and and I, and I think that there's some rationale behind that.
1: I think so, too, and it, and it is not a sprint, per se. You know, this is one that you can get through the first half of these courses and and just crush it, but if you're anaerobic and you get a little tired in those last obstacles, it, it's the time when someone like Nick with his endurance can really, I think, really catch people. My, my guess is he will not be out front first part of the race, but I would not be surprised at all if he's uh, in the front at the end or certainly on the podium. I think uh, Nick at 25 years old, is a, he's a very, very good runner, but more than anything, he's just a determined guy. I've, I've, I've seen very few people in my running life or in any part of my life that are as driven uh, as he is. But also, who you know, seem to enjoy. They enjoy it. He enjoys just being out there participating. But he's also there to win. He's got a he's got a great combination of of drive and and perspective. You know, if he doesn't win, he wants to know why. But and, and I think that that's a good thing for most people to strive for is to. Analyze performance, but not get so caught up in it that it becomes all that you care about.
0: Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely correct about him. And, and, you know, Nick was at my house uh, last week, and we did a VO2 on him, and we did some stuff. And actually, Nick and I are collaborating on a few running clinics, and we are going to do one on the 10th of October here cl- locally And the way it's going to work is, like, the first part of it is me going through and doing some education on running mechanics and helping people to get where they should be when they're making contact with the ground, what have you. And then the second part of it's application where Nick's going to take them on trail and go through some technical aspects of trail running, up and downhill, where to put your posture, contact points, things like this, so... We're gonna do a couple of we got one slated for the tenth and we're looking at another date in San Diego on the seventeenth. And there's another one we have scheduled for Mexico City. It's kinda of turning into something.
1: That's like, fantastic.
0: Yeah, I like Nick's energy and he shared with me yeah. that you and him and possibly Dean Carnassus are is planning to do this thing. In Badwater to Whitney, so I guess it's uh, what is it from the lowest elevation to the highest elevation in North America? Is that what the deal is?
1: It is, but we're going to stay. Well, it, I guess that would include uh, that would include Mount McKinley. So it's technically in the uh, contiguous United States, the lowest to highest. But you know, we're gonna we're gonna do this thing one way or the other. It's been you know our schedule of the three of us is a little complicated, as as you might imagine. So we've it's, as the old saying goes, it's been a little bit like herding cats right now, and and trying to get everyone to agree on a date. But we're going to get this done in you know 2015 before it's over. And, and even at this point, it's really already turned into a winter ascent. <laughs> it's uh right. It's you know we we thought it might be a uh, you know a fall thing, and it's going to be a winter ascent, which I'm actually very excited about. I like. You know, it turns it into more of an alpine thing, and and the last part of it going up Whitney will absolutely be, you know, roped progression with the three of us on a, you know, on a glacier and heading up to the summit. And I think that 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 coming at the end of basically 130 miles over incredibly difficult rough terrain uh, is going to be. I think it's going to be an epic adventure and one that we will actually be pretty lucky to you know, to complete, at least in a, in a timely fashion. I think it's going to be that we've got El Nino, it looks like to worry about. And if it's, um, you know, if it's really bad, we're just going to have to do our best, but I think it will, it will potentially take us longer than the two days we originally slated. But, you know, we're going to be filming it and hopefully that, that, uh, footage will appear, uh, in runner's world or somewhere on their website, uh, in the future, that's the goal. You know, it's it's interesting. You have to do these things first and then see how they turn out. And, yeah. and then if, if it's good then of course there's always going to be a place to put it. i excited about doing it with the two of them because we're, you know, Dean and I have had, um, certainly, I, I was going to say parallel, he's, he's done, you know, far more than I have in certain areas and, and I've done some things he hasn't done. But you know, Nick is our, we have decided that Nick is going to be carrying the packs for all three of us (laughs) during this run. And, and that I am absolutely not ashamed to be bungeed on to the back of Nick's pack. If that's what it takes (laughs) to get this thing done. He's a, he's a strong kid and he's, you know, he's really running well, has a great attitude. And I, I, I think that this, our goal out of doing an expedition like this is actually to encourage other people to, you know, find their own adventure, create it. You know, don't don't all there's a million fantastic races and events out there and I love doing races and just showing up and and taking advantage of somebody else's organization. But it's cool to every once in a while go out and, and just come up with an idea to do something yourself. You know, buy the maps, learn how to use it, and and make sure that you make your own safety plan, and do all those things. And those kind of adventures are, in many ways, so much more rewarding than than just always racing. And so I'm excited that I get to do it with those two guys. And hopefully, the next time, next time one of us is on anyway, or maybe all of us will have some good stories. So.
0: Well, I would think that. Uh given your background, that carving a path, so to speak, is absolutely in your wheelhouse. Where Nick, on the other hand, he's kind of, uh, and I don't want to take anything away from him, he's kind of a babe in the woods with this. The advantage that he has, is, as you suggested many times, is he's just strong, he's young, He's uh, he's got a lot of gusto. And he came off some amazing, amazing events and fared very, very well and seems to be coming into his own now I mean he's he's so young yet relatively speaking for the sport I mean as you know most uh, guys that are doing this really long and crazy stuff tend to be a little bit older than 20 some odd years old right?
1: Absolutely well I'm it it This is me off, Richard, because I used to always say that you have to be, you have to have been alive long enough to learn how to suffer properly. Right. And, and some of these young guys, not just Nick, but some of the other young ultra runners out there are, are completely shooting down my theory that, that, uh, having that maturity is absolutely necessary. You know, I think, of course, it's always going to be a plus, you know, if you've been through some difficult things in life, I think those translate very well to doing really difficult events, and and you know when things get difficult, and and you want to quit, or it feels impossible to go on, you know, those are the experiences that you draw upon, and some of these young guys, you know, they just, and girls, just, you know, they haven't been around long enough to have had too many incredibly hard experiences in life, but... I'll tell you, the talent level out there in the ultra world these days—it's so much younger, and you know, there's still room for us old guys. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, development, and, and just the way the sport uh, is growing, and, and the fact that it is drawing in so many—you know—so many younger people. Nick's also very smart. Nick chooses the right events. He knows his strengths. You know, the guy can run up and down mountains all day. And you know, he he may not be able to win a you know, a flat hundred miler, but man, you put you know, you put thirty thousand feet of elevation gain <laughs> yeah on that course and I wouldn't bet against him. So
0: Well he won that uh, that fat dog one twenty and I think that they he yeah. told me and you know, he's very astute, he pays close attention to the details. He said it's about twenty five thousand vertical feet over the course of those 120 miles and he set a record. So yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah. He, he, he likes, he's a goat. He likes to climb and he does a good job with it.
1: Well, he knows better than generally speaking than to be in first place, you know, 50 miles into a 120 mile race, you know, let let somebody else get out there and do that. And if you're running the right kind of race and really that holds true, of course, for, as we know, for any, any distance just about, I mean, except for the super elite and marathons and so forth. They, they need to stay in contact with the first pack, but pretty much in any ultra 50 miles on up, you know, I think it's, it's always critical to make your own plan. You know, and if somebody beats you on that day by, by being faster then fine, but don't beat yourself by going out too fast. And he, he, again, at such a young age seems to have mastered the, Uh, the mindset of really pacing himself and and making sure not to take himself out of the race early.
0: Right. So talk to me about this uh, trip you just did to Ecuador. Apparently, back in August, you had a seven-day stage race. What was that like?
1: Man, it was one of my, it was one of the best races I've ever been involved with, Richard Racing the Planet, you know, who's been around now for more than 10 years, organized the race, and Uh, You know, they do the Four Desert Series, and and I actually won their first event, the Gobi March, back in 2003, and and did well in a couple other events that they put on back in the early days. And and the the sport has certainly progressed. And this was the seven-day stage race format that really was made famous, first, I would say, by Marathon de Saab in Morocco. And, you know, you do basically – so somewhere around a marathon or so every day for seven days. And most of the races are around 150 miles. This one was 250 K, which is 155 miles in seven days. And, you know, the, the big wild card for most everyone in it uh, was the altitude. You know, the race day one started above, you know, 12,000 feet. And, you For pretty much the entire race, rarely dropped below that. Not until the very last day did we run down to, uh, you know, to 6,000 or 7,000 feet where the race finished. So for me, you know, I live at the ocean in Wilmington, North Carolina, I have to go to a local parking deck just to find a hill to run up. Wow. and and that and that's what I do you know I'll pack a 30 pound pack and go run up and down a stupid parking deck and, and uh, beat myself up just to just do anything to, to get off the flat ground but you know what I love about Ecuador I'm not sure if you've ever been is no. it, it's just one of the it's one of the friendliest places on earth you know my wife who is an ornithologist by trade she's a you know a scientist she spent years in the Ecuadorian Amazon studying birds and so Ecuador is also a, a special place for her so we took the time to go there together and we went a few weeks early so uh, so that I could have some acclimatization and she actually came and, and uh, she volunteered at the race so she had to do her own acclimatization and uh, I was working on the final phases of the first draft of my book and, and she found a place on Airbnb and an organic quinoa farm out in the mountains outside of of Otavalo, Ecuador, and you know we set up camp for twenty five bucks a day, including meals and and just wrote and ran every day.
0: Wow! And it was
1: truly, truly one of the best you know experiences of my life. Wow. Uh, the race itself, I came in sixth overall. Had a good race against a really tough. International field. Um, uh, one other American was up there with me. He came. He came third overall. And um, you know, it was just a fantastic field. And and it's it's so unique, Richard, because you have. I think there were something like thirty-seven countries represented with a couple hundred people. So you know, you truly had people from everywhere around the world, and you. You know, you share these six-person tents, and most of the time, it's just, you know, it's random. So you're in there with people you don't know, and by the end of the week, they're basically family. And it was a great experience. Wow. Uh, thoroughly, Thoroughly enjoyed it. I'd recommend another one of those things. I'd recommend, you know, it's an adventure. You can plan your own adventures, or you can go do something like this. and and let someone else do hard planning and and you just show up and enjoy the scenery. And I enjoyed the scenery when I could actually breathe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, every time you recommend an adventure to me, it's always something that's way outside my wheelhouse. Last time we talked, you tried to get me to do the Furnace Creek 400. Oh, yeah. And I got to tell you, I I did 10% of that distance this morning and my butt's still sore. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I tell you, with cycling, that's what you have to do. you got to spend more time in the saddle more than anything else. But, yeah. no, you know, you're an adventurous guy, and I know you love, you know, one of the things that I feel luckiest about is the fact that, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I'm not a guy that can just go do anything anytime. So I have to pick and choose my adventures pretty carefully. And and I like to pick ones that are going to expose me to a culture that, you know, that maybe I'm not accustomed to. My first big adventure race was back in 1999, and it was in Ecuador. And, you know, it was a raid gawaz and I was way over my head. Like, I was basically doing the Super Bowl of adventure racing after never having played, like, midgetly. You know, I I had no clue what I was doing and went out there and got my my butt kicked for 10 straight days in the mountains in Ecuador and and so I look at this race as not redemption but as an opportunity to actually enjoy myself a little more and and work hard but, but see some scenery that you know I hadn't seen for the last 15 years and Ecuador is just a great place great economy beautiful countryside people are as friendly as anywhere on earth and and you know, experiencing that culture is is my practically my whole reason to to travel.
0: Well, I like that twenty five dollar a day budget. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, my wife is a genius. You know, with Airbnb. Well, in a lot of ways, she is. But you know, there is so many great bargains in that part of the world that you know, I you know, I've stayed in enough hotels in my life and to go stay somewhere that you can really experience the culture. I don't want to go to another culture and feel like I'm in the United States. You know, I I like the United States and and I love my country, but I also, you know, if I'm going to go somewhere else, I don't want to be in a luxury hotel. that feels like I'm still here. (laughs) That to me is like, what's the point? Why not just stay here then? Right. And, so when I go, and I always encourage other people, you know, dive in. Don't be afraid. You know, the language barriers and everything else are really easily overcomeable, even if you don't speak the language. My, my wife happens to be fluent in Spanish, so it, it did make our trip a little easier.
0: But oh, yeah, I would imagine. Um,
1: you know, I encourage people to, you know, don't be shy, man. Get out there and just and and, and go see some place and put yourself in a position where. You know where your phone doesn't work and where you don't have wi-fi and you're not just online all the time and, and you can you can actually detach from your life for a little while and and gain a little perspective
0: so you mentioned that while you were out there and you were bivouacking that you worked on your book uh is this your first book charlie
1: it is my first book and it's it's uh it is a memoir and. You know, as I like to say, Richard, if enough stuff happens to you in your life, then then somebody actually is willing to read a book about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: I've had my share. I've had my share of adventures, and uh, you know, Simon Schuster is the publisher, uh, Scribner, which is one of their imprints, and you know, I'm very excited about it. It's been a long process. You know, I'm I'm I love to write and. I think I'm a, a pretty good storyteller, but crafting crafting a book is, is what, as you all know, I think, is, is much different than writing a story and making it something that is digestible for the reader and is interesting and takes them, you know, on a journey. It, it's really, it's been fantastic and it's also been the hardest thing I've, I've really ever done.
0: I have to agree with you, Charlie. I mean, I I wrote a book I'm, I'm working on a second. I just now got the strength to even consider trying to do this again. And the first one that I wrote, literally, I tripped over myself for about nine years trying to produce it. Now, part of the problem was it wasn't about me. It was a, it's a science book, basically, about how to train with heart rate and things like that. And and as your knowledge evolves, you just kind of say, oh, shit, you know, I got I to gotta change that. You know, I got to do this now. I got to think about this. And so it just took forever and ever and ever to finally get it out. And the just the whole exercise of learning to create a book was way, way beyond my scope. And now I think I kind of got it handled. I understand it a little bit better. And I think I've got a pretty good topic. It's going to be along the same lines. Uh, I don't know that uh, I'll ever come up with a memoir. I, I don't. I don't know that my life's well. Uh, I was going to say it's been that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I know better than that. I mean, there's... you know what? Yeah,
1: you, yeah. You tell the stories right. It's it's absolutely interesting, and I I know enough about your life that it is very interesting, and it's it's. You know, it is how you tell the story and how much you know how much you're willing to share. Well, and that's the
0: that's the rub, there, buddy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. that I'm not. A, you know, I'm not afraid. Anybody that knows me or, or, you know, a lot of people that don't know me, you know, that I'm not shy about opening up and, and hopefully about sharing my, my shortcomings and my successes. And, you know, I recognize a lot of my imperfections and I've, I've had enough people around me to, to tell me the ones that I don't recognize right. on my own. Well, and, you know, I think that's a big part of writing a book is being able to tell a story in a, you know, in an honest way. And I'll tell you, I sat down, you know, I sat down to write a couple of years ago and, you know, it's fascinating to try to recreate, you know, stories that happened 20 or 25 or longer years ago. And especially in my case, because with some of them I was, you know, drunk or high. So yeah. back back before I cleaned up that part of my life, you know, trying to recreate stories. You know, it's complicated. I have to ask other people sometimes and sometimes there's nobody else around. So so figuring it out is a matter like a mystery and like a like a puzzle almost and and putting together pieces in a way that that make it interesting that doesn't bore people and that doesn't um, you know, that also doesn't make because my life as, a, as an addict certainly was far from glamorous you know there was very little fun to be had although there was some you know there was some fun through the years until it wasn't fun anymore and so finding a way to tell those stories and, and really uh, talking about how running has played a specific role in my life and how running really has, not a not cliche or I'm not being trite when I say running has saved my life in, in many ways. You know, it's it's allowed me an outlet that at times, if I hadn't had that outlet, I would have, have gone crazy or, or done something, you know, damaging to myself or, you know, whatever. And And finding ways to describe that Are has been complicated, and you know there's only so many stories you can tell about races. Yeah, this is not this book is not this book is not going to be a book of races or running experiences per se. It'll appeal to runners, I'm certain, but you know there's only so many times you can talk about a run and say, "Okay, I entered this race and it was really hard," and. one point I wanted to quit and it got difficult and I threw up on my shoes and, and then I found the strength to keep going. I mean, that is a powerful story always. And, you know, millions of runners have that, that story, whether it's in a 5k or a, or a hundred miler, but finding a a way to voice those feelings is difficult. And I, I hope I've done a pretty good job of that. But then, also, really talking about the other things that running does for me and and how it improves the rest of my life and and the things that it's that' it's changed in me is is what I've really searched for the voice to tell that kind of story in this book and hopefully hopefully that's what it will come out reading like i I think so. People who have read it so far have have told me that <laughs> so. I'm, I'm hoping i chose the right people
0: well i'm sure i'm sure I, obviously i'm intrigued and I, I i would love to get a chance to read it because uh, i know enough about you to know that there's plenty to be said beyond just the fact that you've done some crazy long runs you know there's way way more depth yeah. in it to, than that
1: well for me it's not a talent gun con- you know it's thousand guys out there and girls right now probably way more than that that are more talented me as a, than, than i am as an ultra runner but again like i was saying about nick earlier i i, I pick and choose events that fit my skill set and usually that means picking something that's difficult and and i'm not going to beat anybody in a sprint and on a on a flat hundred mile or even i'm i'm going to get my butt kicked most of the time so i need some I need some obstacles in the way. Speaking of obstacle racing, right? But um, you know, I think that what I what I hope to really convey also is the fact that I am still searching. You know, I'm 53 years old, but I'm looking for new ways to test myself and you know to improve myself. And and you know, I've become Uh, In recent years, you know, I became a a vegan and have lived that lifestyle now for many years and haven't really promoted that because there's guys like Scott Jurek and and some other very rich role and some really high profile people that, you know, that promote that lifestyle. And I, I bring it up occasionally, but, you know, I think that that's, you know, that's one way that I have dramatically improved. Not just my life in general, but also my my performance in running
0: so you think being a vegan has has uh had influence in your ability to to run
1: I, I absolutely am a thousand percent sure of it it's wow. um it's it's because more than anything I do feel i'm i'm not I'm not constantly battling my body's not constantly battling um, certain Certain toxins, and I mean, you can eat—you know—you can eat organic meat also, and and such. But I'm not a just for whatever reason I wasn't built as a meat eater. I ate meat growing up because you know why? Because that's what was served in my house. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're young or when you're a kid, you you pretty much eat what you know what's put in front of you. And you know, I realized in my in my 20s and especially uh, in my 30s that I just didn't have that the other people would say, man, I just, I've got to have a steak or I've got to have a hamburger. And I, I just didn't get that craving the way other people seem to. And for me, I was like, man, I sure would love some broccoli or I I really want, you know, some Brussels sprouts or I want something green more Mm -hmm. than anything. And I, I found that that's what did it for me. And you know my wife is really my my nutritional guru and she's uh she's been a vegan for nearly thirty years and so twenty five years and so she's you know she's amazing she sort of runs the runs the kitchen in her house and she's a great cook and you know what I also found was my my impression was always that being a vegan or be eating organic uh foods was you know, way more expensive and it's, it's just not true. It's not true. You just have to be a little more diligent in how you do your shopping. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, everybody, I I think in general, you know, if you're going to eat an apple, you'd rather have an organic apple than an inorganic apple. You know, I, I think that's just common sense, but um, a lot of people just don't ever, you know, they don't ever think of that. They, they switch to a, a vegetarian or vegan diet, and they they don't take that extra step to make sure that they're also, you know, eating whenever possible an organic diet. And I do; I think it's made a huge difference in my performance and my energy, and you know, my just overall quality of my life. So, huh. you know,
0: I, I haven't mean, I haven't pulled I the manage. trigger on that uh, even for a little bit in in my entire life. Yeah. The closest I've been to um let's just refer to it as being a clean eater was i i divorced myself from red meat for about 17 years
1: and i'm yeah. talking
0: about zero red meat so there was no no red meat whatsoever i mean not even a pepperoni on a pizza no bacon none of that yeah and yeah. i live primarily on you know fish and chicken and and you know obviously vegetables but um I have to be honest with you. I don't know that when I finally said, "You know what? Screw this. I'm just going to have a steak." Um, yeah. I don't. I don't. I can't reflect and say, "Wow, that was a big mistake." And ever since then, I've been falling off. But obviously, and you know, we're not going to go into this uh, in great detail. But just you know, for whatever it's worth, I think the biggest influence I would have as an athlete, if I was to categorize myself as such would be to stop drinking, which is something that I just have had a hell of a time trying to pull out of my wheelhouse. And I tell people all the yep. time, if I was going to survive life, and I knew for a fact that if I just stopped drinking that I would live instead of not, then I might. Yeah. But uh, yeah. as it turns out, you know, we're all just renting here where <laughs> nobody's got ownership.
1: No doubt. Well, drinking was, you know, I mean, as you know, my background, I mean, I'm I'm at this point, uh, you know, in July, I passed. Well, while I was in, uh, while I was in Ecuador, a few days after I finished the first draft of the book and a couple of days before the race started, I, I had my 23 year sobriety anniversary. And, and for me, I mean, and, and I would say that making, Choices like becoming a, a, a vegetarian or a vegan, uh, making nutritional choices, starting a, an exercise program, those are those are choices, you know, and, and they're personal choices that I certainly have some strong feelings about animal rights, and I won't go into any of that because that's a, that's a longer conversation, right. but in general, I think that Becoming vegan or vegetarian is a person's choice. When we start talking about alcohol, it's complicated, you know, because I know for me, I wouldn't be alive. You know, I, I drank the same way I run. <laughs> there was no, there was really not very much in between for me, if, if ever. I say not very much. There probably was none. And so. You know for me that addictive personality was front and center early on and for a little while the two worlds coexisted i actually drank and drugged and ran uh and it was tough disastrous and weird and you know i ran more than a few races you know intoxicated and it was just it's just such a baffling uh, situation that I, I can't even... I look back and I can't believe that that, would, that that was me. But, you know, and then I spent years, after I did get clean and sober, I spent years, like, trying to trying to destroy that, that addictive part of me. Trying to destroy the addicts, because I didn't want to do the destructive things anymore. So I thought if I killed that guy, then you know, then the rest of my life would be good. But what I found was the addictive nature that I have is in fact, the part of me that drives my successes, whatever those are, you know, it, it sure. makes me, it makes me a, a, a decent runner. It makes me, um, a very, uh, it makes me a good friend and a decent husband. It makes me a lot of things. It also makes me you know, a dick sometimes, it also makes me, you know, my, my obsessive nature and my desire to have things my way, you know, get me, get me in trouble sometimes because those, those personality flaws are also part of being an addict. And I would love to just blame it on some, you know, I'd love to blame my shortcomings on just an affliction, but you know, that affliction also is just the fact that I'm, I'm human. I'm just a, I'm just a person and I have flaws and, you know, sometimes they come out at the least opportune times, but, you know, to your, to your point, to your point a minute ago about alcohol and your, and your, in yourself and like giving it up. And what I, what I always tell people is the same as being a vegan or even a vegetarian is and that's what you would tell people starting a, an exercise program or, you know, just a running program is, you know, don't worry about, you know, if you've never run a 5K, don't worry about what your results are going to be in a 100-miler. <laughs> you know, just get started. Try it on, like trying on a new set of clothes. You know, try it on for a little while and see, see how it fits, see if it makes a difference. And there's a lot of people out there that are always curious about, Uh, in particular about changing eating habits. And, you know, I remind them that they do get to change their mind if they want to. Right. You know, make a choice, make a choice, change the lifestyle, you know, become a vegan for a while, see how it sits. I tell you, the other thing I changed was, you know, the amount of gluten that I eat. I used, to, I used to hear the words gluten-free and vegan, and I would, you know, I'd make fun of those people, and now I am those people. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm like, because I just thought it was all crunchy and hippie, and, uh, you know, I needed dreadlocks to do that. Now, of course, it's becoming far more mainstream. What I found as a runner, and I'll keep this really brief, gluten is a great example. I have no, I love bread, Like, like I love breathing, you know, I, I don't ever want to give up bread, but what I've actually found is as a runner, you know, bread is a, as a very high gluten product. Most of the time, it causes a certain significant amount of inflammation in my joints and in my body. And that's just one of the side effects of eating a high gluten diet. So my wife, again, being the, the, the orchestrator of our diet. You know, I eat eat pasta two or three nights a week, but it's gluten-free pasta. We eat, you know, breads that are gluten-free. We eat as much of our diet as as a gluten-free diet as we can. And what I found is my joint pain as a long-term runner, you know, I have some arthritis and I have different things that I feel every single day. That has lessened significantly. I I mean, like if I had to put a number on it, it's lessened by probably... You know, thirty or forty percent. So it's a big number, not not a not an insignificant one. Wow. And you know what? If I can eat if I can eat bread that's gluten free, I still could eat bread. I still eat pasta and all that. But if I can do that, I can reduce the inflammation in my joints and and be a better runner and a, and a happier runner. Then I'll do it. You know, I'll do it every time. It'd be crazy not to.
0: Yeah. Well, you make a good point. So since we're on the topic of uh health and well being, talk to me a little bit about this project that you're involved with that uh has to do with sleep technology.
1: Oh, right. Well thank you for asking that. I tell you so I've I've discovered I've discovered a really important new thing, Richard, and I, I want to listen very carefully. It's called sleep. <laughs> you may have heard of it before. <laughs>
0: I, I try to get no. as much of it as I possibly can, but I, I seem to be—I'm—I'm uh, I'm fixed. I'm on a fixed diet where my sleep is concerned.
1: <laughs> well, and uh, of course, I'm being a little uh, smart ass as usual. But you know, I started looking, and this goes back a few years. I started looking a few years ago at ways that I, I can improve because I felt like not that I had peaked as a runner you know, because there's always new things we can learn and we can just like what you do with helping runners, you know, improve everything from gait to breathing to, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, There's, there's always those ways that I can continue to improve. But I went back and I examined the, the core of, you know, how I live my life on a daily basis. And I was the, I am still, but uh, a few years ago, I was worse. I was the classic multitasker over committer who, you know, felt like I was somehow special and that I could function on six hours of sleep per night and still run at a high level and do, you know, do my business and whatever else it is that I was doing, you know, at At the best level possible with that kind of limited sleep. And what I found out and what I have found out is just simply that that's not true. And when I really began to focus on getting more sleep, and by more, I'm talking, you know, between eight and eight and a half hours, usually for me. it it really changed my life and I didn't just focus on, okay, I need to get more sleep. It's like, how can I do it? And how can I improve the environment that I sleep in and in what ways can I make that difference? And there's a ton of ways, you know, setting up a, I would, I would almost call myself in these last few years, I've become a bit of a, of a sleep expert and a, a sleep junkie, if you will. Um, and one of the things that I did was research, uh, the thing that is the closest to our skin when we sleep and that's the fabric that's the sheets that we actually sleep on. And I was living in Greensboro, North Carolina and uh, which is really the, I consider it the hub, at least in the past of textile manufacturing in the United States. And a friend of mine was president of a company called precision fabrics. And I got in touch with him and, and we talked a lot about fabrics and, and he and uh, an inventor that worked at their company had come up with a fabric that was really designed for the medical space. It was designed to help prevent infections and bacteria and it's hypoallergenic. But it, it also had this incredible side benefit for athletes that it was a cooling product. So I tried it and I started sleeping on this about three years ago and it has grown into uh, a project. It's grown into a company that, that now manufactures in the United States a product called Dermatherapy Sport. And Dermatherapy Sport is now being used by, you know, a dozen professional athletic teams. It's being used by runners all over the country. We are getting ready to relaunch the company, uh, and with a new name, uh, and that name is actually deep sport and the focus of the company is really going to be on, you know, deep training and deep sleep and deep recovery and really trying to change the way people, not just do sleep, but giving them the tools necessary to actually get better sleep. And frankly, Richard, if you're one of those guys who get six hours of sleep like I used to, at the very minimum, what you want is to get six hours of the highest quality sleep that you can get, right?
0: Right. Well, you know, so, it's interesting you bring that up because another guy that's really tied to fitness, Johnny G. I don't know if you ever met him, the the guy that invented spinning.
1: Yes, of course. Well, John, I, I've actually taken a class. I took a class from him years ago. Yeah. Johnny and
0: I are <laughs> dear friends and occasionally we get together and we just talk, and if you've ever been in front of him, you know that he's a very interesting guy to listen to. Uh, there's not a whole lot yeah. of two-way conversation going on. It's a lot of listening. But uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. he has some issues. He was bipolar, He's, and he was one of those guys that wrote a book and just bared his soul and told everybody how messed up he was. And but genius, and and he was living. He used to tell people that he was living on about two and a half hours of sleep. Uh, he's manic depressive and bipolar, so he's either yeah. on or he's off. And yeah. he started getting into the research of these harmonics that help to you know, in music that that that's like kind of behind the scenes would help to push you into REM sleep. And he started really getting fascinated about the different levels of relaxation you achieve and uh, the recovery that you gain when you get into this position of REM sleep. And so in essence, what it sounds like to me is you're kind of like on that same path where if if you could drop yourself into that deep, deep, deep sleep, then there's a lot of chemical activity that goes on where your your cortisol levels are going to dump and you're just basically going to get into a better yeah. spot. Is that pretty much what's going on?
1: Absolutely what's going on. And we have a couple of you know, we have a couple of sleep experts. Uh Dr. James Moss, who's pretty much the the you know, the expert, if you will, in the sleep category. Cornell uh PhD who invented I love I love this tidbit of information, he invented the term power nap a long time ago. So he is um an amazing guy and Doctor and Winters who does a tremendous amount of work with professional athletic teams. And what these guys talk about is just what you said, REM sleep. And I've learned about the patterns of REM sleep and and how after a couple of hours, you know, you reach one level of REM and then, you know, maybe four hours in there's a longer, you know, REM sleep that takes place, but the true recovery sleep, the true recovery sleep for any athlete, but I, I'm a runner. So I talk about running and, and these CrossFit athletes also, because I'm doing some of that these days, it's not until you hit that six-and-a-half-hour mark, and this is just a physiological fact. Sure, it varies a little bit person-to-person, but in general, we're all built similarly. And it's not until you hit that mark that you truly drop into the, you know, the super recovery uh, phase of your sleep. So as a runner... You know, if you're only getting that six or six and a half hours of sleep, you're basically robbing yourself of the benefits of, you know, of the, the hardest part of your training and the recovery that you need. And, you know, and I've, I mean, we've had great success so far. I mean, we're, my partner is uh, a guy named Ruben Hannon. And Ruben, I've known for many years. Ruben was the president of Champ Sports for years and the president of, of Foot Locker Canada. And uh, very, you know, very well-known and well-connected guy in the athletic retail market. And, you know, he was astounded that there wasn't already a product like this, you know, out there on the market that really focuses on, you know, athletic recovery uh, in, in the sleep gear space. And my goal is, you know, with this project is to actually educate people on, you know, not just not just what you sleep on, but the environment you sleep in, everything from setting up your room with the, the right uh, temperature and fans and darkness and eliminating, you know, eliminating technology from the bedroom, you know, as, as uh, Dr. Moss is famous for saying, is there, there's, there's, There's two reasons to be in your bed, and that's, you know, sex and sleep. And anything beyond that shouldn't be happening in the bed. You know, that's not the place for your computer. It's not. And that's been a hard habit for me to break. You know, I'd be the first to admit, you know, I'm I'm, I'm that guy that wakes up, you know, at whatever time in the morning, and the first thing I want to do is reach over and grab, you know, my phone because, heaven forbid, somebody wants to get in touch with me and I'm not available, right? Yeah. (laughs) And it's that kind of thinking that we've all gotten into that, you know, sleep really has, you know, has robbed us of well, we're robbed of sleep by being too focused on being connected all the time. Right. You know, and the fact is, I mean, look, you help people, you it's, it's part of what you do and your mandate you know, in life is to help people work on biomechanics and work on becoming better athletes and better runners. But it does not matter, and please forgive me for saying it this way. It doesn't matter how much you help them. If they're only getting, you know, five or six hours of sleep at night, they're not going to improve. If they did everything you told them to do and they got eight hours of sleep, suddenly, you know, you would see, you know, exponential improvement because the body needs, you know, it needs rest. And I don't care what age you are. You know, there's been studies out there, tons of clinical studies that talk about uh, the relationship between sleep and just cognitive ability and memory. And so in, in high school kids who are now also more uh, distracted than any generation maybe ever, I mean, every generation seems to fall into that category. But now more than ever, you know, kids are bombarded with with screens that have light that tell their bodies that they're awake and not asleep and, and information. And, you know, what I've also learned is, there's really no, I I always considered myself to be one of those multitaskers that was, you know, gifted somehow. And what I found out is that what I'm gifted at is doing kind of a half-assed job at a lot of things (laughs) (laughs) because, because instead of just focusing on them and sleep has become, you know, one of the things that if I stay up till one o'clock in the morning, fine. And do I feel the pressure of needing to get up and get my day going the next day? Absolutely. But I know that if I go to sleep at one o'clock, I need to stay in bed until nine o'clock and that will allow me to actually function and get my work done the next day. If I feel the pressure to get up at six and get busy, I will have, especially writing and running, I will have a subpar day and I'll get less done even though the day was longer. I'll still get left done, and so you know this. Pro, you know, dermatherapy sport again has. It, there have been nine clinical studies with this fabric in hospital settings, and it has been shown to do everything from practically, certainly, dramatically decrease incidence of MRSA and staph infections in, you know, in hospital settings. And we're talking about studies at Johns Hopkins, at you know. At some big some big clinical research places, not not places where they go and you know pay for the research. These are independent studies, and you know, and the fabric itself basically wicks away moisture. As a, as a runner and as an athlete, I'm a hot sleeper. and seems like everybody I talk to who trains hard, sleeps hot, and you know the last thing you want is cotton next to your skin. I mean, there's a reason, Richard. Think back 20 years ago. What did everybody wear as a t-shirt? Everybody wore cotton, right? Right. And then Under Armour hits the scene, and you know, and Nike, and everybody else in in this space. And you would you would practically never see a runner wearing, you know, a cotton t-shirt in a marathon, or cotton shorts, or cotton socks. Well why wouldn't that extend to the eight or nine hours a night that you're actually in bed? You know, the same reasons that cotton is not good for you to sweat in and create a really gnarly environment next to your skin are the same reasons that, you know, we shouldn't sleep in it. But it's what we all grew up sleeping on, you know, is cotton. And, you know, we all grew up wearing cotton t-shirts. And so it's, it's this is closing the gap of the 24-hour cycle and taking people to a you know a healthier sleep environment because we're we're already spending the other 16 hours trying to be as, hel- as healthy as possible.
0: Well, I got to tell you I've I've always, you know, I've for the for years and years and years all of our training occurs early in the morning. And yeah. we would get resistance from people when they hear what time we train because they would try to reflect on their day. So I get to bed at midnight. Oh, my God, you mean you want me to be up at you show up at 5? And that's not going to happen because I, won't, da, 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 yeah. I get all this argument, right? And I said, well, you know, I mean, truly, what are you doing between the hours of, say, 8 o'clock in the evening and midnight? I mean, really, you're, you're vegging in front of a computer. You're doing something that is really not – not something you can do without, I mean, or couldn't do without. And if you got up earlier and just kinda of shifted your, your entire clock around and got up earlier in the morning and and spent some quality time during the day, you'd get more done anyway.
1: No, that is absolutely true. And and you know, and it it's it's a it is difficult because we are we all like our, our whether T V shows or whatever it is and that time in the evening is hard to detach from. But you know the sleep if you're you know if you're serious about the training and you're serious about the results sleep is is really not something that can be replaced with anything else. you know does diet matter does training matter does of course all of those things play a role, but the fact of the matter is everybody sleeps you know, and your quality of the sleep is going to have a huge impact on you know, on how well you perform. And actually Dr. Moz, uh, is very, he's famous. He's written a bunch of books. is Is recent, I think it's called sleep to Win. And, you know, he talks in the book about, uh, in fact, you should have him on sometime. I <laughs> he's right. a fascinating guy to talk to. And Dr. Moss talks about, um, training a, uh, a, an Olympic speed, not a speed skater, figure skater, a, a girl. And, you know, they are famous in that sport for, Getting up at, you know, 4.30 in the morning and having to drive an hour to the rink because I live somewhere else. And, you know, and there's that's the mentality of the sport is to be on the ice, you know, first thing in the morning before anybody else gets there and all of that. And, and, and she was, uh, failing and failing and, you know, doing well, but not really peaking. And, and when he got a hold of her, what he did was, I mean, <laughs> he basically stepped on the toes of her trainers and said, look, she's not coming to any more uh, early morning practices, period. She'll do the afternoon session, and that's going to be it. And so for six months, they did that, and everybody freaked out, and it, and she freaked out as an athlete. You know, she has grown up being taught. You know, you're a figure skater. You're going to be off at 4.30 in the morning and go skate. And, of course, you know, the story ends up that, Um, she makes this change and she starts getting nine hours of sleep a night and skipping that early morning, that early morning session. And she won, uh, and I'm I'm afraid I don't remember which Olympics, but she won, you know, a gold medal in figure skating, American skater. And, you know, it was, she, she basically credited changing her sleep patterns for making that happen. Mm. Her talent didn't change. Her genetics didn't change. Her, You know, nothing about how good she was at what she did changed. It was just simply how she let her body recover. And, you know, I think that certainly for. See, I don't want to put an age on it. I I like to say, certainly for my age, for our age, you know, it's important. And younger people tend to think that sleep just isn't important. And. I think, again, depending on the level of performance you want to have and how you want to function in your day, you know, sleep is just so, so critical. So I'm, I'm excited about, you know, hopefully in a, in a few months we can talk again about sleep. And, and you know, I think, again, it's something that every athlete uh, is interested in, just like diet and training. And, and very often they just take it for granted. Yeah, it's besides, overlooked. Of course. Everybody yeah, everybody sleeps and everybody thinks, okay, I know how to sleep. Right, but you know there are ways to improve it. Just like there's ways to improve every every aspect of our lives and our training.
0: So the product uh, for the moment is not on the market available.
1: It is, it is, and actually you can go to DermatherapySport.com. So just like it sounds, DermatherapySport, and you know can you know somebody wants to order product, that's fine. But there's lots of information there about the product. We're going to be relaunching in a few months uh with a, a a much larger campaign and a little different focus and you know our plans are not to be brick and mortar you know we're not going to be in stores we're going to be online and you know that is the you know it's the way so many many products are are sold these days and we don't consider these to be you know it's not sheets it's, it's actually bed gear it's actually gear for your bedroom and there's going to be a lot of products offered that will uh, that will help improve the quality of sleep, and that will—that uh, I, I think—that will ultimately make a, a significant change in the athlete's life and and performance.
0: Well, that's really interesting stuff, Charlie. And I I uh, I'm sitting here thinking about you writing a book, and I'm thinking, well, the next book should be about sleep training. You know, what <laughs> yeah. giving focus to sleeping as a as a uh, Uh, an important adjunct to the fact that you're doing the work that you're doing to improve.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. It is so funny how I, I felt like I'm a pretty high energy guy. I drink too much caffeine every day. I, you know, certain things that I do and I put a lot of pressure on myself to, to achieve every single day, you know, to, to reach goals, to do things, to, you know, whatever it is. And, my, my wife again is a much more mellow person than me and she was a pro beach volleyball player for years i mean she's a, a a much higher end athlete than i've ever been but she has this ability to separate things out in her life that i don't have yet i'm, I'm learning slowly you know she can be high end and go to the gym and go run and and do all those things. And yet at night turn it off and read a book and not worry about the 12 things that still need to be done. And I'm, I'm still, I still struggle with that. And so sleep was always <laughs> getting in bed half a time was, was when I knew that my brain was actually going to turn on and I was going to lay there thinking about all the things that I didn't get done or the, or the exercise that I have to do tomorrow or whatever it is. And what I'm slowly but surely learning is, is, uh, you know, is changing that part of my life and, and my, you know, everything from my training to uh, just how I even handle myself on a daily basis and how I interact with other people, especially my life, yeah. uh, has dramatically improved since my, since the quality of my sleep has improved.
0: Well, I want you to get your sleep, because I, I want to I be in on, I want to be on the inside track for this uh, Death Valley altitude experiment. I think that that's going to be a Absolutely. good one. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, got it. And like I told you, I got Nick is in the wheelhouse, I, I've got him paying attention to me, and we're working on some things together, so it's going to be a, a closer circle, and I always enjoy speaking with you, Charlie. I'm sorry that it's taken me so long to finally get back to you and get you back on the show, but... We will revisit.
1: No, thanks for having me. I'm, it's always my pleasure. And, you know, I'm looking forward to, uh, in fact, I'd love to come be part of one of these uh, clinics one day because I, I, I love seeing you in action helping, you know, helping people improve their lives and improve their performance.
0: I would love to have you, Charlie. I would. And as a matter of fact, there's a very good chance I'll be coming in your direction anyway. I've got people who are trying to get me out to the East Coast. And by the way, uh, you, you got that hurricane on you right now, don't you? <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll tell you a funny thing. So I was going to go home uh, to chat with you today, and I was working in a coffee shop. And frankly, I came out to my car. So I've been sitting in my car chatting with you, and I am looking at I'm looking at flags that are blowing it's got to be 30 or 40 mile an hour straight line winds and rain. And it's, it's going to be a nasty three days I think right now. So um, there is nothing better than running like in this kind of weather in a hurricane. (laughs) I mean, you know, of course, yes, you have to be safe. I'm not, I'm not advocating (laughs) being, you know, being reckless, but right now it's just windy and rainy, you know? and and it's it's fantastic to go out to the track even or, or just go get in a a run cuz there's nobody else out there and there's something cleansing about this kind of weather that I just it feels edgy and and I don't know it's it's maybe that addict still talking. I just love that I love that edgy feeling. So I'll let you know how it turns out.
0: All right. Well, you be safe and uh, I will. Again, thanks again for coming on and I'll I'll be sure to connect with you soon. I, I I like the idea of having you come to a clinic with us.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, I'll I'll, I'll uh, work with some groups here on the East Coast too. One here and right here in Wilmington uh, called Without Limits. That's fantastic group and I guarantee you. Uh, we would love to have you here. So let's talk about that.
0: All right. Thanks, Charlie. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.